As we've been doing throughout this series, we have a team of readers uh, this morning who will present for us our text uh, from the book of Revelation. Our text today is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. That's on page 1917 of your Pew Bible. Once again, we ask that you participate with us at the beginning. You'll see, you'll see a reader's words on the screen followed by your words. Don't miss it. Now hear the word of God. A portion from the revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant John. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, for the time is near. Bless us, Lord, as, as we, we read and hear and take, and take to, to heart, heart these words. To the angel of the church in to Ephesus, the angel write. of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the angel of the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. These are the words of the Son of God. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Holy and true. I know your deeds. Your hard work. I know your, your afflictions and your poverty. Yet I know you where are you rich. Live, where Satan has his throne. I know your yet deeds, you remain your love true. and faith. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at against first. You. There are some who I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who I know calls your herself a prophet. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. To the one who is victorious, I will Be give faithful, the right to even to the, the point of death, of and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I will give to some the of one the who hidden is victorious, manna. I will give authority over the nations. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. <clears throat> you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. 
Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Thank you for that once again. As a church, we are in a, a series on the book of, of Revelation, sort of toward the front end of that uh, series. And today we're looking at the last word on the church. And uh, it's a big task because actually there are seven last words to the church that are here in the book of Revelation. Uh, we are looking this morning at uh, the letter to the Laodicean church. One thing we have to understand about these letters is that they are not independent from one another. They are not independent from the book of Revelation. They are interdependent. They depend on each other. They depend on the book as a whole. And therefore, it's a, it's a difficult thing to just sort of um, try to speed through them. Um, and yet, that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Brothers and sisters of mine in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> like most of you, I'm sure, when I was a kid, I had a list of, of chores that needed to be done um, on a daily or weekly basis. I think I was supposed to cut the lawn. I was supposed to uh, unload the dishwasher, take out the garbage, dust the baseboards, all sorts of things like that. You probably had a list as well. What you may not have had uh, was a father who went around assessing all of my work uh, when it was finished. And he had that look on his face that told me when things were not meeting his approval. And it seemed like fathers always had that ability to do more reproof, more critique than they did affirmation. Uh, maybe not yours, but it seemed that way for me. This is sort of what the letters to the seven churches are all about. They are Jesus' critique of his church. A couple of things we have to remember, however, is that these critiques came with both affirmation and censure. Okay? Both things. The other thing we have to remember as we, as we hear this message today is that <clears throat> these are the words of Jesus. Okay, the critique comes from Jesus, not even John Calvin or Abraham Kuyper. By the way, those are just there so we have a reminder to look at the camera once in a while. But the one who assesses the work of the church or the life of the church is Jesus. And what we have to remember from last week's message is, is who Jesus is, right? 
He's the one that John turns to and, and sees in all his magnificence and he falls at his feet as though dead. But then what did Jesus do? He pulls back his beard and he says, hey John, it, it's me. And as we hear the critiques of Jesus, we also have to remember that, that this is the Jesus who loves his church. This is the Jesus who died for his church. That's who the critique comes from. Now, this morning, we're going to look at three basic things. The who, who gives that critique. So we'll talk about this Jesus a little more. Then we'll talk about the who, who hears the critique. This church <clears throat> that's in Laodicea. And then we want to hear the heart of, of Jesus' evaluation, the heart of his message. So let's begin with who this Jesus really is. And you see this in verse 14, if you have your Bibles open. Jesus describes himself here in three ways. He says he is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness, and he is also the ruler of God's creation. Now, I think we get that part about the faithful and true witness. We talked about this a little last week as well, that Jesus is sort of the, uh, the ultimate martyr, right? He was the faithful witness of, uh, to God and to God's gospel, the witness all the way to death. He was faithful and true all the way to death. He's also described here as the ruler of God's creation. And that word ruler is actually the Greek word arche, which can also mean the origin, the beginning. So Jesus was someone who was there in the beginning. He's the origin of all that is. He's aware of what this creation was intended for by God from the very beginning. And then as sort of a bookend to that, he says, I am also the amen, right? Now, it's that little word, amen, I just want to talk a little bit further about because we usually don't use that word to apply to a person, do we? That's usually a word, instead, that we use um, liturgically. It comes up in worship. We might put it at the end of prayers, for instance, but it doesn't always come at the end of something. It also comes in the midst of something. Sometimes during sermons, someone will shout out, amen. And I have an amen, sometimes the preacher has to say, right? Um, I've preached at times in a majority African-American congregations. And it never fails that afterward, um, talking to one of my Caucasian friends or family members, they'll ask me something like this, so, so did that distract you at all when, when, when people were shouting amen or things like that? <clears throat> and I always try to frame that this way, I say, you know what, in, in our tradition, most of the sermon critique happens after the sermon. It either happens on the way out of church as people shake your hand or don't shake your hand or they'll talk to you or they don't talk to you, ways like that. In the African-American tradition, the sermon critique often happens during the sermon, right? And so when something is going well, people shout out, Amen! And that's a good thing. That means people are in agreement with you. They're affirming what you're saying. What you don't want to hear is, watch out now, watch out, um, things of, of that nature. What you really don't want to hear is complete silence, because then you know you are not preaching the Word of God. The Amen is a good thing, right? It's an interjection emphasizing the final truthfulness of something. And that's why Jesus here is the amen, okay? He is the final amen to our lives, 
the life of our church. He is also the amen in the midst of it all. And what we have to understand is that Jesus, by definition, is actually God's amen. He is the amen to everything that God has ever done or thought about doing. He is in complete agreement with God the Father on everything. God says He's out to redeem sinners. God says He's out to fix the world of everything that's wrong with it. God says that He's out to fill the stomachs of bloated children. God says that He's out to bring peace to places like Afghanistan and and Palestine. God says He's out to find friends for those who seem to talk only to themselves. God's out to create safe havens for children who who lay awake at night in fear of who might come through the door. And just in case we think Jesus is about anything else, anything different, just in case we think Jesus might be about condemning sinners or about helping those who help themselves or about protecting the status quo, or about justice for some but not everyone, then Jesus says, think again. I am the amen to everything that God is about. We go together like bread and like wine. And I am willing to suffer. I am willing to be called names, to be spit upon, punched, whipped, even crucified for everything that the Father stands for. Jesus is the amen to everything God has ever said and done. And it's this Jesus who comes to the church at Laodicea. It's by that standard that Jesus comes and judges this church. He is the final word of truth. He is the faithful and true witness to the Father We may think that we know what Christianity is all about. But if there is any slippage in what we believe compared to what Jesus and the Father have taught us, Jesus will say so. He is the one who tells it like it is. He will either put an amen at the end of our lives or he will not. That's who comes to Laodicea with these words. Who is it that he speaks to? What are these people like? What does he say? Well, he comes to the church of Laodicea. And what he says is, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Not something that Protestants really expect to hear. I know your deeds. And your deeds, he says, don't deserve my amen. What Jesus is telling us here in a fashion is, I know you better than you know yourselves. We do know a few things about the church at Laodicea and about that community. Laodiceans were a very wealthy church and lived in a very prosperous city. 
The city was built at the crossroads of two very well-traveled trade routes. The city was so wealthy, in fact, that when they experienced a major earthquake back in the year of 60 A.D., they needed no imperial help to recover. Okay? So imagine that being New Orleans or Houston and them experience a, a major hurricane, right? Like, like we hear so often. It would be like one of those cities saying, you know, don't bother sending FEMA down here. We don't need any federal help. We can do this on our own. Or it would be like one of us, you know, losing our jobs as a result of COVID-19 and, and saying to the government, don't bother with the stimulus check. I'm good. I'm good. I'll take care of this on my own. That was Laodicea. They were a self-sufficient tribe. Okay? They were affluent and they were proud. They didn't need any help from anyone, which explains verse 17. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. This was a church that figured they had the world and God himself by the horns. But what does Jesus say? He says, I know you better than you know yourselves. Look at the second half of verse 17. He says, you do not realize, literally he says, you do not know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Back to what we know about Laodicea, we know these three things. They were famous for their banking They were famous for their medicinal prowess, especially their eye salves that they sort of held up to the rest of Asia as as the healing for eyes. They were also known for their textile industry, especially for their wools. That's what they were known for. That's what they were proud of. That's what they knew about themselves. Jesus says, in my eyes, you are poor. In my eyes, you are blind. And in my eyes, you are naked. In fact, Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, if we knew anything about the Laodicean church before we came here this morning, that was probably it, right? The stuff about hot and cold and lukewarm. Most of us have heard that before in some shape or form. But if you're at all like me, the explanations you've heard for those have been perhaps less than satisfying. What does that mean? What's it all about? I used to hear that phrase or those words explain sort of this way, that there are basically two reactions that we can have, two responses that we can have to the gospel, maybe three. We can either be on fire hot for the gospel, or we can be atheistically cold. And then there's this middle ground where you can be sort of lukewarm to the gospel. And so it was explained what Jesus is saying is, look, I wish you were either really, really excited about your faith or at least honest about your apathy. But none of this middle-of-the-road stuff. None of this lukewarm kind of faith. It's, it's better just to, be, just to be honest, even if that means you don't believe at all. I don't know about you, I always felt that was 
something bothersome about that. I mean, Jesus would rather I would respond coldly to the gospel than, than at least with a, an honest but perhaps meager response to the gospel. I mean, where would any of us be if that was the case? Well, gladly, I don't think that's what Jesus means here at all. The truth is, there were, there were two cities nearby the city of, of Laodicea. Hierapolis, which was about six miles away, and Colossae, which is about ten miles away. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, its hot water, and they were said to have medicinal value. People came from all over um, to experience those hot water springs. And then there was Colossae, which was known for its cool, pure spring water. Okay? Um, Laodicea had neither of those things. As I said, Laodicea was built because it was a great place for trade. It was an intersection of trade routes. It had nothing to do with was there a good water source there. In fact, that was always their weakness. They had terrible water. But remember what we said about the Laodiceans, right? They're a self-sufficient people. They're wealthy people. So what did they do? They actually built, engineered and built their own aqueduct system that extended for miles to the south and they brought in, they imported water from someplace else. The only problem was that that water was terrible too. Um, in fact, some people even say that the water was hot when it started at its source, but by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and it was worth nothing. But that's sort of the background for Jesus' words here. And what he's saying basically then is, look, I prefer that your faith be either, he's not saying, excuse me, he isn't saying, I prefer your faith be either totally alive or completely dead. But what he's saying is more like, look, you're not like the useful hot water of Hierapolis and you're not like the great tasting cold water of Colossae. In fact, there's nothing special about you at all. You think there is, but there isn't. He says, I know your deeds, and actually they leave an awful taste in my mouth. And for that reason, I'm about to spit you out. Friends, in a sense, what Jesus is saying here is that there's nothing distinctive Nothing special about your deeds. Nothing that makes them stand out as related to Jesus in any way. You're like a recipe for salsa, he says, with no secret peppers. There's no secret ingredient to your chili, right? You'd never win a chili cook-off. There's just nothing special here. You might as well might as well be the Rotary Club or, or some generic 501c3 rather than the Church of Jesus Christ. There's just no bang to your works. Something's missing. This is where we get at the heart of the message. What's missing in Laodicea? Are we told? Do we know? Do we have any hints? As to what's missing here? Well, yeah, we do. 
What's missing, believe it or not, is Jesus. What's missing is Jesus. And we have two very strong hints to that. The first one comes in verse 20, where Jesus himself says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You get the picture? Where is Jesus? He's not inside the church. He's out on the doorstep, knocking. He's still in communication with the church, but not full fellowship. The Laodicean church is missing Jesus. Um, a few weeks ago, Brandon started this series, and one of the things he said about the book of Revelation is that it doesn't teach us really anything new, right? It just it puts old things in fresh ways. Well, think about this a moment. It's the deeds of the church of Laodicea that Jesus says are lukewarm, that there's nothing special about. We think the book of Revelation was written by John, right? Well, think about John's gospel. Because John also said something about good deeds, good works. In chapter 15 of his gospel, if anyone remembers that, he talks about the true vine and how we are all branches. If you remember what he says there, he says, apart from Jesus, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. In fact, he says, if you, want to, if you want to bear good fruit, how do you do that? He says, you abide in me. You remain in me. If the branches remain connected to the vine, then you will produce good fruit. This church was not abiding in Jesus. Jesus was absent. They were trying to do church without the most important person of all. The second hint to what's missing actually comes earlier in verse 17, where Jesus says, in effect, this. He says, look, you believe that you are rich, but I know for a fact that you are poor. You really don't know what true wealth is. This is a direct allusion to the church of Smyrna, to the letter to the church of Smyrna, <clears throat> because in that letter, Jesus says to Smyrna the exact opposite thing. He says, you think you are poor, but actually, you are rich. Now, why was it that the Smyrnans believed that they were poor? Well, the answer probably is because they were poor. You see, they were a persecuted church. They were a suffering church. They were not in the good graces of, of the community around them. And here's the reason why. Jesus refers in that letter, to the letter of Smyrna, to, to the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. What is that about? Some of these things are so hard to understand. Well, from what we can tell, Persecution in the Roman Empire was not empire-wide at this time, at the time the book of Revelation was written. 
Rather, the persecution sort of took place on a case-by-case basis. In other words, somebody had to report you as being a Christian. Someone had to turn you in to the authorities before you were going to experience persecution. Which helps us understand the harsh language about the Jews in the letter to Smyrna. You may not be aware that Judaism at this time was considered to be a legal religion. Okay? The Jews had received this privilege already from Julius Caesar about 40 B.C. And what that meant is that if they were a legal religion, they did not have to um, engage in emperor worship. Okay? They were exempt from worshiping the emperor. But now remember this. Okay? Where did Christians get their start? They got their start in the synagogues, right? They came out of the Jewish synagogues. The Jews were their brothers and sisters. They were converted Jews. And so from the government's point of view, Christians and Jews, they were all pretty much the same. And so Christians at the beginning were also exempt from worshiping the emperor. Until, that is, the Jews began to blow the whistle on their fellow Jews. They reported the Christians to the authorities. And they used the phrase, they say they are Jews and are not. They are Christians. They have nothing to do with Judaism. They are a cult. They are a sect. They are troublemakers. And they have no privileges under Roman law. And so they were persecuted. Now, in that situation, think about that situation. If you were one of those Christians in Smyrna, being fingered as a Christian, not a Jew, what would have been the easiest thing for you to do to escape persecution? It would have been to simply act like the rest of the Jews, right? Well, you could have still worshipped God. You just had to worship God the Father and not mention anything about His Son, Jesus. And, and maybe you switched days of worship. You just worshipped on the Sabbath rather than on Sunday, right? No big deal. No big deal. All they had to do was make a few small, tiny compromises in the way that they lived. And compromise would have come mainly in the form of silence. Just keep your head low. Just remain anonymous. You'll be okay. But what that all comes down to is for the Smyrnans, in order to escape persecution, all they would have had to do was deny Jesus. Just don't attach yourselves to Jesus. And they wouldn't do it. Because to them, Jesus was everything. To them, Jesus was wealth, riches, 
He was everything. And I wish we could say that about the Laodiceans. But to the Laodiceans, Jesus was just the opposite. Jesus meant loss of wealth. Jesus meant suffering. Full obedience to Jesus meant trouble. Meant giving up the good life. You see, true table fellowship with Jesus, right? And Jesus was always doing that in the gospel. Inviting people to eat with him or or going to people's houses to eat with them. But true table fellowship with Jesus, that true communion with Jesus, what that meant was being willing to take not only him, but his suffering into your home and his suffering to your table as well. True loyalty to Jesus meant taking all of Jesus, not just some of him. And the Laodiceans couldn't do that. They refused to suffer. And they turned their back on full fellowship with their suffering Lord. And because of it, their deeds were lukewarm. They were nothing. Now, now maybe that sounds harsh, right? I mean, refusing full fellowship with Jesus, is that really what they did? So maybe think of it this way. When was the last time that you you did something or you said something or you loved someone where you looked back and said, you know, I could have never done that without the help of Jesus. could have never done that without the help of Jesus. Just think for a moment. Have you found yourself thinking those words at all lately? Ever? Or have you tried to live your life pretty much always on your own resources? Basically, without Jesus. When was the last time you did something not in your own strength? Not out of your own resources, not out of your own sufficiency, but purely out of the resources provided by Jesus. Do you really need Jesus in your life? In in your life? Or really, could you go on living the life that you're living without Jesus at all. Or here's maybe another way to put it. How many times have you passed on those opportunities to love, to act, to speak, to serve because it would just be too difficult? It would be a struggle. It would be inconvenient. And so you just didn't do it. Be real honest with yourself, friends. Have you ever tried to be a Christian without Christ? You think your own resources are enough. You've got enough. No need to buy pure gold from Jesus. 
And, and your works are, are great. There's no need to buy or to put on the righteousness of Jesus because you've got good clothes. Are there any areas of life right here and right now that if you were to be in complete and faithful fellowship to Jesus, it would spell trouble for you? Not just because you know you like to be contrarian, because there are people like that who think that just by being difficult means that you're one with Jesus. This is the other way around. Because you're one with Jesus, life becomes difficult. You know, anonymity is at least as much of a temptation for us as it was for the church in Smyrna. In fact, we live in a culture that encourages anonymity. I mean, in our culture, nobody really cares what you believe, do they? As long as you keep quiet about it. Nobody cares what you believe. Nobody at work cares what you believe. Just don't talk about what you believe. It's when you start talking about Jesus. It's when you mention his name or when you hear his name mentioned or, or someone says, well, this is what the Bible says and you actually stand up and say, well, no, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus is all about. Let me tell you what he's about. That's when the trouble comes. Our culture's fine with anonymity. It's not fine with Jesus. So what do we do? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 19, he says, hey, if you're anything like these people, this church in Laodicea, this is the answer. He says, be earnest or zealous about Jesus and repent. Being a zealot for Jesus is basically just, you can't live without Jesus. It's all about him. I will not, I refuse to let go of Jesus. And repent. Repent of all the times we have chosen a little more world and a little less Jesus. Repent of all the times we've chosen a little more a little more quiet, a little more order, and a little less Jesus. Repent of the times you've chosen a little more control over the chaos and a little less Jesus. A little more success, but a little less Jesus. Repent. You know this, uh, going back to the title, the Amen of Jesus. It's interesting. <clears throat> There's another, that Amen that comes at the end of our lives or in the midst of our lives reminds us of another title that Jesus uses for himself in one of these letters to the seven churches. He says that, remember that he will come like a thief. And that sort of reminds us of, of what Jesus said in the Gospels, right? He said, I will come like a thief in the night, and therefore be watchful. 
And, and oftentimes we've misinterpreted those words and we've taken that be watchful and, and then we've combined it with the book of Revelation and we've gone into all these things about how we have to, you know, we're watching for signs and, and all this stuff that's going to tell us um, something about the spiritual world and when Jesus is going to come and all those kinds of things. It's not what Jesus intended. What he meant when he said, I will come like a thief, is my coming is not going to be like an algebra exam that you can cram for on the last night. It's going to be more like a pop quiz. Jesus says, when I come, I will find the truth about who you are. I will know the truth about who you are. I am the amen. Jesus is coming. And he will know the truth about who we are. In fact, he knows the truth about who we are. Are we his people? Zealous for him? Rich in his presence? Or are we trying to skate through life not having fellowship with him at all. Let's think about that as we pray. Lord Jesus, we all desire to hear your amen at the end of our lives. That we are in agreement. This is good is good. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill our lives with more of yourself, that we may be rich in you, and that in fellowship with you, in abiding in you, even our good deeds may reflect you and your goodness and your Father and his goodness and your kingdom. And so, Lord, we do look forward to your coming. Not just at the end of time, but your coming right here and right now. We don't want you standing on the front porch. We want you at our table. And we want to be at your table. We want to be in full communion with you, even if that means suffering. We want Jesus. This is our prayer to you. Amen.